0: This week's episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by Developer Town. By leveraging their years of experience working with startups, Developer Town is able to help companies better understand the viability of potential software solutions and quickly bring them to market. Developer Town has created proven sprint-to-market processes so large enterprises can move like a startup. You can find out more at developertown.com powderkeg. Again, that's developertown.com powderkeg. Developer Town, start something.
1: You know, a lot of really talented, smart people, they shouldn't be founders, not because they can't, but because it's not always glorious, right? Actually, very little of it is glorious.
0: That's Heather Hartnett, CEO and partner at Human Ventures, which is a venture studio helping founders build high-growth, high-impact companies right in the heart of New York City. And unlike traditional VC firms or incubators, Human Ventures operates as a foundry where they grow companies from ideas to reality with the right support and the right network. So they actually select three to five big idea companies a year to co-found with an exceptional team or entrepreneur. And Heather's also a board member at the David Lynch Foundation, which is a nonprofit transforming the lives of at-risk populations through a very particular style of meditation. So in this conversation with Heather, you're gonna learn all about Heather's approach to business and professional growth. And we're gonna talk through some of the obstacles that non-traditional founders should be prepared to face, as well as some of the ways we're gonna overcome those obstacles. But we're also going to talk about mindfulness and why you need to take care of yourself as well as your business. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and you're listening to episode 31 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, a show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators who are building remarkable tech companies in areas decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. Human Ventures is based in New York City, which is sometimes referred to as Silicon Alley, and it's a booming hub of innovation, especially in new media, telecommunications, digital media, and financial technology. In 2015, Silicon Alley alone generated over $7.3 billion in venture capital investment, most based in Manhattan as well as Brooklyn, but also in areas like Queens and elsewhere in the region. Silicon Alley was originally centered in the Flatiron District, in the vicinity of the Flatiron Building at Fifth Avenue near Broadway and 23rd Street. If you've never been there, it's it's the area straddling sort of Midtown and Lower Manhattan. And for this interview, I traveled to the offices of Human Ventures, which is near Union Square in Manhattan, to meet with Human Ventures partner and CEO Heather Hartnett. And what I love about Heather's story is that she took a non traditional path to the world of venture capital and has given her a great passion for enabling social change through technology and business. So please enjoy this interview with Heather Hartnett.
1: I'm Heather Hartnett, and I'm CEO and co founder of Human Ventures. So um, my background is actually kind of a unique one for being in venture. I think. Um, we are kind of getting, coming to this exciting point in starting companies where other backgrounds uh, are actually valued, and it's a, it's a it's an interesting perspective and a new perspective coming into this scene that has been traditionally kind of very one-tracked, where when you're in the venture space, you've had a finance background, and when you're a founder, you know, you had a tech background. And so that's definitely being disrupted right now. Absolutely. Um, my personal story is that I came from a long line of entrepreneurs. I um, My grandfather was a real estate developer. It was really the first time I saw, you know, something... Um, Start from nothing, where he would kind of visualize a building, and then you'd actually see this incredible skyscraper come out of it. And that, to me, as a very young kid, was always just awe-inspiring. It was that this could be a blueprint, and then it was actually a building. And then my father was was he an
2: architect or builder? He was on the
1: on the developer side, so he was kind of producer, right? He brought the architects together, he brought the money together, had the concept, but he was the vision guy. Yeah. And in places that really now, in hindsight, have been huge. You know, Century City in California, he developed La Jolla. Um, he ended, in, um, ended up in uh, Chicago and did Lake Point Tower in Chicago. So that was his last building. Wow. But my, my father kind of had that as a role model and he was a digital version of that. So he started many businesses himself, uh, the most recent being in the um, telecommunications space. And um, that segued really into the internet. So he, in the 90s, we started purchasing domain names and that was to him, digital real estate. And so yeah. he started, you know, we had at the dinner table, we would have conversations of pick a domain name and think a bit about a business around it, yeah. right? And so- and
2: what was his name and that company
0: name?
1: Uh, his name's Christopher Hartnett. He had USA Global Link, which was an international telecommunications company.
0: Awesome.
1: I didn't know that I was really being shaped to, to think um, kind of very in an entrepreneurial way. However, when you grow up amongst that, it's a lot of pressure to start a company, you know. Sure. So, and and interrupt me anytime when you want to, you know.
2: No, I, I, I would love to know if if you were ever pressured to start anything with any of those domains.
1: Yeah. Oh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's still my. What my were dad. some
2: of the What were some of the top domains that oh, uh, that you were contemplating? Do you remember any of
1: them? My dad was very early in the um, dot .tv space, so he had a lot of dot .tv's. Oh wow. um, He had a lot of organics. He was Mr. Global, so everything global. He had um, Global Online. Now, you know, he has won mymother.com. We've been thinking about what what business that's going to be, you know. But when I did graduate school or graduate business school, I was, uh, you know, he said, well, what company are you going to start? And that was when I actually transitioned to venture because I didn't know what, you know, what company I was going to start. So we had a good family friend and he said, well, why don't you come and see me rip apart business plans or, you know, kind of depict business plans and see, you know, if you get
2: inspiration that way. Do you think that question... What company are you gonna start is something that more parents should ask their kids?
1: I mean that in particular is a very a daunting one. <laughs> but I do I am a very strong advocate for starting really giving the confidence, especially to young girls, the right skills if you do want to start something for yourself, right? That that you that you can, that you should be confident, but you should be able to really understand how to grow fast, know where your weaknesses are and your strengths are. You know, partner with other people. So there, there are a lot of qualities that I think my father and mother instilled within me that make sense for me to have that risk tolerance in my career.
2: What were some of those ways that they did that? Do you remember any of the particular like young experiences and
1: um, some of the things? I mean, we traveled quite a bit because my dad had an international um, company, and so. You know, throughout high school, middle school and high school, I was traveling quite a bit. And being exposed to other cultures, other problems, uh, seeing challenges, I think that was a big eye-opener for me in an early age, uh, that they might have not had it as an intentional you know, part of my upbringing, but allowed me to, to look at things from different perspectives. I never actually really have talked about this, and I'm just thinking about it now, but I was part of something called Odyssey of the Mind when I was really young, and that was throughout grade school. And it was a problem solving, it wasn't drama, but it was a problem solving group that we had to create. You know, it was a puzzle and problem solving type of a. A group.
2: Yeah, it's, it sounds familiar. <laughs> is that was it a national program?
1: National program. Okay. Actually, it's global. So you would compete against other kids your age. You weren't allowed to take any help from adults, and it was just really a way to exercise your brain, thinking outside of the box. And I think, hmm. I mean, even that term has now become so cliche. But but as a kid, it really got me thinking about that sort of stuff.
2: Oh, interesting. So that
1: was always encouraged in our family.
2: Getting in, getting into the right programs. Yep. Did you yep. have some role models early on that were people you're like, I want to be more like this person when I grow up, other than obviously your parents and your, gran- your grandfather.
1: Actually, it brings up a good point. I-, I spent a lot of time with adults when I was young. Mm. And so I really learned a lot of, you know, how to have mentors and to kind of take lessons from older people. And I, I didn't think that much about it, but I-, but I do think that's had a huge effect on how, how I approach things.
2: Yeah, was there a specific way you took advice and implemented it and and found that you were able to interact with adults that you maybe didn't see your peers at the time doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I probably was criticized a little bit for that because I, you know, you you can look like you're a brown nose or look like you're trying to strive for approval and things like this. But I really just wanted to get the most out of every opportunity, I Mm -hmm. think. But a lot of it was... Uh, making sure that you had enough gratitude for I spent a lot of time with people who were very philanthropic mm. Just regardless of their means, it was a part of life that even if you didn't make a lot of money, you still saved a portion of that to be able to give back to the community. And I think that shaped a lot of the way that I asked questions, that I was really grateful for what we had. And I think all of those qualities are what you need in order to to work well with founders, to work well within this
2: system. I appreciate you sharing that just because I think it's always interesting and I'm not having kids anytime soon, but when I do, I want to raise them to be entrepreneurial and see all the opportunities um, and not necessarily be pigeonholed down a certain track. But, you know, if they ended up doing something entrepreneurial, I certainly wouldn't mind. So it's self-serving as much as I think, you know, a lot of our listeners probably want to make sure that their kids feel like they have all the entrepreneurial opportunities or at least tools to go down that route if they need to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were. Just, um, I was just talking about this with somebody earlier too. I think spending time volunteering and being in philanthropy is a really great breeding ground, training ground for starting your own company because. Yeah. You do have to galvanize donors to be able to invest in something that they're not going to see a return for a long time. You have to be able to be scrappy with the resources that you do have, be very intentional about how you're growing it. And so I've definitely seen, um, you know, a lot of translation from working in philanthropy to... Uh, working in early stage
2: companies, and I know you're still very much involved in the philanthropic side. So I want to make sure we get a yeah. chance to talk about that at some point. But I want well, to we can go back. <laughs> I, I want to dive. I do want to dive back into you know you deciding to go into venture because you didn't necessarily yeah. have the entrepreneurial um, idea yet. What was that transition like?
1: Uh, it was it was great. It was at a time where I don't think venture was really widely known. So um, I didn't come at it from the investment side. I came at it from just um, really being curious about some problems and how market-based solutions could tackle those problems. So I was at a fund in Oakland, California, actually, and one of the things I was tasked to research was, how does mobile banking help the unbanked in, in rural African countries. And so that's very specific, but that started my kind of now that I see lifelong pursuit of how do for-profit businesses create a big impact. And in, you know, in this day and age, when you have a big impact, that means it's a big business, right? Um, And so you know that good companies, that that scalable, fast-growing companies are going to have an impact. Let's make sure that's a positive one has always been kind of a mission of mine as well.
2: When you started asking those kinds of questions of how can for profit, make a big impact that matters and is measurable, what kinds of ideas initially did you start to come up with?
1: I mean, just as I, I think financial inclusion was a big one. Okay. How do you level set the playing field? And so for me, you know, stumbling upon technology was not because I idolized the tech industry. It was for me seeing how can you create a big enough impact in a a more efficient and and fast way. And I, I started seeing that technology was actually a means to be able to do that. And so when I came to New York, I was actually a uh, you know, big fan of this organization called Charity Water. And they were able to disrupt the nonprofit space. They said, you know, wh- why don't we look at this like it's a startup? We're investing in technology, and they were able to raise you know, hundreds of millions of dollars without even knowing their donor base, which was never heard of before. And that was just a way to show that you can have, you can leverage technology to be able to scale what you're trying to do. Um, so I came into tech through a very different lens.
2: Yeah, I bet that gives you different perspective when you're approaching some of these problems. And I imagine you work with a lot of founders that come from non-traditional backgrounds. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a big benefit of what we're doing. So I'll, I'll fast forward.
2: Yeah, you want to give me kind of like the...
1: The thread. The,
2: <laughs> the 10,000 foot, like what you're doing now with, with Human Ventures and how that kind of came to be.
1: yeah. Yeah. So, so I started in venture, but then I took a very interesting, you know, turn where I was in several startups. I went into philanthropy and then I married the two. And when I came back to venture, it was with the lens of impact investing. I think that the term impact investing actually became more of an impediment than it was, um, a, you know, a, a forcing function of growth for that industry. So I thought, you know, when I started human with my partner, Joe Marchese, we, I said, I would like to start with the people. I'd like to start with the humans. Mm. And we, you know, having an impact with your company, um, there are a lot of well meaning companies that actually are having a, you know not a great impact or there are some companies that you know didn't really necessarily know that they were going to be an impact but through the the management and the people and the decisions that they make they're an incredible company mm. and so i think that it really matters for to me how i define impact now is who the people are who are starting it because every single day you have to make multiple decisions and you you know have to rely on your own spontaneous right action to be able to create a great company and so that's so we just we decided that it was really let's let's really focus on the people.
2: Well, and you have some amazing companies in your portfolio. Can you tell me a little bit about the kinds of companies you've you've been able to invest in and, and grow with?
1: Uh, we are kind of fo- focus agnostic, so we, we're across different industries. But what we, you know, what we really do pride ourselves on and think a lot about are those early team dynamics and found those founding kind of call it five to 10 members of the team. And what that looks like is, you know, when we invest in a company, we're investing in a founder and together we're co-founding that company. And so we put the first $500,000 into a company, give or take, and together with the founder, we say, what are your strengths, whether it be domain expertise, whether it be operational skills, and how can we round out your skills with the first five to 10 members of your team to be able to set that business up for success. So when you think about that kind of dynamic, it doesn't really matter what industry you're in, because it's so nascent, if you know how to produce, you know, be the, the producer of that. You're bringing qualified experts in those different areas. Um, you don't have to be an expert in every field. You just have to be an, an expert in how that company is going about that problem.
2: When you sign that first $500,000 check and kind of help create this founding team, at what stage is the company at that point? Is, is that just purely idea stage? Yes,
1: genesis of an idea. Wow. And so what we, you know, we do refer to the myth of the big idea. Even if you have a company idea, the company's very different after year 1 after year 2 it, it takes many different turns um, in response to what the market needs are the trends the you know where the customers really are so we will have a space that we want to be in whether it's um, digital currency or banking or education or e-commerce. And we have a a hypothesis around where we want to play in that space with technology-enabled platforms. And then we start having really in-depth conversations and market testing and prototyping. And when we find a founder that really resonates with that idea, together we decide, okay, let's start a company. That's when we start forming the company, forming the team around it.
2: So a lot of times the founder's not necessarily even coming in with the idea. It's something that you've already identified this is a market gap, could be a big idea. It isn't necessarily a big idea unless we can execute on it and prove that there's real market opportunity there. And then you're going and finding the founder.
1: I've talked about this with a lot of things. I, I think a lot of people want to say that it's you know, some really structured way that, that it happens. But the truth of the matter is, it's, it kind of comes from both sides. Sometimes there is a founder who has a domain expertise or a really incredible idea. And we can be that co-founder and accelerate with our network that idea. Hmm. Um, and sometimes it's you know coming from us and we're trying to match the, the person who has that type of skill. And almost pick stock in that founder and bring them in and, and give them that opportunity to start it.
2: What makes a worthwhile CEO? For someone that's that's in a venture that is looking to make a massive impact and uh, do it in a way that makes sense for your impact investing model,
1: we have a couple different archetypes that we've seen now of founders. One, I'll put into kind of the visionary camp. They have a really big idea, but we need to pair them with some incredible execution.
2: Yeah. I thought big ideas were a myth.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the, you know they have other kind of areas. So visionary. Uh, you know, I also say they're a really good salesperson. They yeah. have a good network. They have a good influence on their network. They, they know how to galvanize talent. They know how to really get a lot of people around that idea. That's a visionary. So you're number two, three person. They better know how to execute that, yeah. right? Yeah. Then there are operational founders who know how to execute. And you're helping them push their vision further and further. Like, can we make that bigger? Can we make that a venture-backable idea? Can we bring that in and, and actually make it bigger? And they know how to execute on that. And then there's one called kind of entrepreneur and corporate clothing where they usually have a domain expertise, but they haven't really had that opportunity or kind of affinity to to start something on their own. Can we help them navigate the startup ecosystem? And I think that lends itself really, New York lends itself really well to that, the the last type, um, because there's so many incredibly talented people here in New York.
2: Yeah, tell tell me more about New York and what it's like starting up in New York City. It's I, I visit here quite a bit, and you know we'll we'll likely be doing Verge New York yeah. shortly. Yeah, uh, which is great. I imagine it's very very different. Yeah, building a startup in New York compared to anywhere else in the world.
1: Uh, it's an incredibly exciting time for New York. I think from what I've heard too. If you're comparing New York to Silicon Valley for pure tech you know, purposes, then people always kind of look at it as, oh, when's New York going to have its coming of age? If you're looking at it for what I think it's going to be in the next 10 years, um, I think investor, I think everybody's underestimating how much New York is going to play a part in this ecosystem, especially when so many incredible industries, business minds, professionals of all different backgrounds um, reside in New York. When they start kind of getting hip to being able to start their own businesses, they're above and beyond just the norm that you know, last 20 years has been kind of solidifying the standard way of you're supposed to start a startup like this. You're supposed to look like this. You're supposed to be this age, you know, it's just kind of bringing in a whole bunch of diversity.
2: What are some of the benefits of diversity that you see firsthand? Or maybe you even have some stories of some of the founders you've worked with in the past that have come from a different sort of a background than maybe your traditional white male MBA. And I shouldn't even say traditional, but the stereotypical Uh, Unfortunately, the data is very skewed that way. What are some of the benefits that you've seen firsthand with having a more diverse founding team?
1: Yeah, we touched a little bit about one of our founders, Megan O'Connor, she has a company in the education space and she was in the nonprofit sector for a long time. She was actually in sales prior to that and her story really is a great one. It's one you should follow up with her as well. She, She said, okay, I'm really good at sales. I might as well sell for good. So she went to fundraising, you know, in, in philanthropy. And, wow. and then at some point she said, you know, I'm selling a lot of this, but I know that I could be affecting change a lot, a lot faster uh, than the nonprofit model. And so I said, you know, you should, you should start a company in the education space. So uh-huh. she's... You know, her passion has been to be able to equalize education. And so she has a, a tutoring platform right now and utilizing AI and, and um, an operational assistant for independent learners. Oh,
2: cool. What's it called? It's called Clark. Clark. Yeah. Okay, cool.
1: So um, her background's very different. And she was always kind of the person behind the person. Phenomenal executor. <laughs> but she did a lot of the work. And I said, well, you know, you're doing it. Let's let's have you do it, right? Cool. And that, that's one, a fulfilling story for me because you're kind of giving that confidence to somebody who you know has that um, DNA. They just haven't been told the same thing that sometimes the stereotypical founder that you just mentioned, you know, that that stereotype has been, reaff- there's been reaffirmation throughout their entire life that that's what they should be doing.
2: Yeah, and it's such a shame because there are so many people with great ideas and maybe have the right DNA, but it's, it's just been nascent and not necessarily brought out. When you think about bringing that out of someone and bringing someone from a different background into the limelight as a co-founder, what are some of the challenges that they face, whether it's internal challenges or external challenges? Yeah,
1: I mean, look, there's a huge societal bias against pedigree or for pedigree, right? So, and, and rightly so, you've had the education coming in opportunity coming through Ivy League schools or the best school, your brain works a little bit differently sometimes. But sometimes not, you know, there, there's a range of expertise within or aptitude within those institutions, just like they're anywhere else in life. I think it's just a lot easier to look to some of the natural fil- filtration methods like, you know, schools and opportunities like that. Than it is to try and pick the winners from random, <laughs> you know, uh, communities where you just right. don't know what excellence looks like in those communities. So I think you just have to have a little bit different of a, of a perspective as to what makes a good founder, and and a lot of that's not, you know, a lot of really talented, smart people they shouldn't be founders not because they can't but because there are a lot of things that you don't it's not always glorious right actually very little of it is glorious yep we have you know a saying here being human takes guts because you need to have extreme capacity for risk for being told that you know you can't do this for you know, being turned down for just defying all odds. Like there's just a lot that you have to take on and you always hear, oh, it's really hard to start companies, but then you're in the middle of it and you're doing a lot of stuff and you're like, no, it really is. It's really, it's really hard. It's not fun when you have to, you know, when you have to make some of these decisions.
2: No, definitely not. I can only imagine, and especially when you're working with so many companies now, um, that probably happens quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I mean we're still really early, so I'm I'm optimistic and excited for the growth that we have ahead. But um, we have been working. We have ten companies now. We've been working in a in a fairly uh, small size prototype. You know, this is my you know my proof of concept here, being able to do this across several different industries and these teams, and and the proof is in the pudding. You know, now we've been able to to raise outside capital for each one of our companies, and how much things are growing. How much
2: has the portfolio raised collectively?
1: Um, almost about fifty million now outside capital. So my goal is really to get that founder to, um, you know, having a really strong lead of a top tier fund price that you know price that company so that we're not pricing our own our own companies.
2: How how do you value how do you value a business at such an early stage? What's the, what's the right way to approach that?
1: Well, luckily that's why I want to have our venture partners come in and and set that price so that we do have some market validation for what we're doing
2: are you usually looking at a multiple of some sort in a particular industry or are you usually backing into it um, in some other way
1: now we're starting to formalize that process of what markets we want to look to so the next couple of companies that we're doing you know you have to have the ability to tap into a, a billion dollar market share or you have to you know be able to touch a billion people with that product or um or service and so you know, as we kind of come up with our next few, you'll start to see some of those themes come about. Oh, then.
2: cool! Other than microfinance, as obviously a huge opportunity there, micro lending. What are some of the other big opportunities you see right now that have potentially a global impact?
1: I mean, some of the things that I'm personally excited about, and some of the other partners, you know, have their their areas. One is the aging population. You know, we're going to have a, a lot of people coming into. There's a lot of opportunity there. Um, people who have had experience now with technology. Um, and as they get older, what does that look like?
2: Are there any companies that you admire that have done a good job of serving that? market? Um,
1: I'm definitely keeping my eye on some actually in the Midwest. There's a lot, there are a lot of, um, facilities that have been opening. They're actually physical facilities. So I'm just excited to see how technology can play in some of those industries. Healthcare I think is, is one where people are seeing that, that we don't have anything in healthcare right now. It's a, that's a Big one, but
0: (laughs)
2: yeah, are are there others besides healthcare and the aging aging population?
1: Uh, We have one company in the location tracking space. So uh, you Mm. know, I think kind of software underlying a lot of things that you might take for granted now. um, With the cost curve, you know, as as the cost of technology comes down and the cost of data right comes down, what does that look like? Can you track all of your things? You know, right now we have a phone with us, so we're tracking ourselves wherever we go. But what does that look like when when your possessions are you know easily trackable? And and
2: so you've got all of these different ventures in these various industries. Talk to me a little bit more about your role here at Human Ventures as sort of like the co-founder of t- 10 companies. Is it sort of like that where you're really the co-founder of 10 companies and you're jumping in yourself and kind of getting your, your hands dirty in the business of all of these? Or is it more from like an advisory standpoint coming in and, and kind of helping provide guidance, make introductions.
1: We're a startup ourselves, so we are, um, we're a little bit ahead of all the companies, but we're seeing how we're staffing up to be able to really provide value for each one of the companies, and it's very much a team. We have, a really strong CFO, COO. We have a strong head of our network and um, community building. Um, operational support is is really strong here in terms of infrastructure for accounting and, you know, setting up QuickBooks is easy. Is not easy going through your early revenue models with a CFO. You don't get that opportunity when you're a two-person startup very often. So we really look to see where we can leverage our expertise for each founder in the beginning um, the most. And then we have quarterly goals for each studio company that Human Ventures is responsible for, and then I allocate you know, the, the time of our team accordingly. So I'm, I'm a little bit of a quarterback, I think, for you know, where the, each company at different stages required different things. Is this company now this quarter looking for product market fit? This one is looking to make two key hires that our network can help support. This one is going for their next round of fundraising. So that's what we're focusing on. And then, you know, so it's not like we're building all those companies simultaneously. Sometimes it's much more of just an investor relationship where we can leverage our network for that founder.
2: Where, where do you feel like as a venture studio, is it safe to say you guys are a venture studio? Yeah. Is that like what you classify the, the yourself term, as? Yeah,
1: the, yeah, the terms um, becoming more familiar, I think, with people as yeah. the nuance of venture changes. But yeah.
2: Very cool, as a venture studio, where do you see the biggest impact that you are making? Because I imagine you do a lot of introductions, a lot of flexing the network. Is there one area more than others where if you can spend more time, whether it's helping raise following capital or whether it's getting customers, yeah. is there one that you prioritize? Like say all 10 companies need something today yeah, of various types. Is there a way you prioritize the one that you address first?
1: I think it definitely cha- it changes in the stage of the company yeah. what that core like are we focusing on the right thing right now there's a million things but you know the the key thing with the early stages are you focusing on the right thing at the right time um, because you can't do everything all at once the short answer is I think if we can save the founders time that's the key commodity here yeah. and so if you can set, save them time recruiting by you know having a fun a funnel already there that they have five vetted candidates and they can choose one, if you can save them time by navigating the funding landscape, you know, a founder has to spend 80% of their time fundraising and now they're over 450 early stage funds. So how can you help them navigate that where you're not actually pitching the VCs, but you can say, this is the partner you should look at. This is, you know, who's interested in this space in this area. I think you'll get along with this investor the best and you can shortcut that experience. That's invaluable to a new founder or a repeat founder.
2: Yep. Saving time. Saving time. Yeah, that makes sense. The kind of recurring theme of diverse backgrounds, your, your sort of passionate about getting young women or girls interested in tech um, and, and innovation at an early age uh, is something that I'm, I'm really passionate about and curious to know from your experience, what have you found to be like, most effective or most looks the most promising to you in terms of what's going on right now to help encourage that?
1: I think it's encouraging um, more diversity in investment decision positions. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's where um, where the funding can be deployed. Uh, you know, if those economic incentives are aligned with diverse investors, they're going to look to fund people like them or with their type of um, background, and so. Uh, Because really at this early stage, when you're an investor, you're investing in something that you, you see in that founder that you saw in yourself or that you, you know, you love that idea and you've wanted to see that company exist in the world. So it's, it's very, very personal. And I think people try to take the person, take the humanity out of it a little bit, and say, "Oh, it's investing, and you know, you have to really be looking at all the numbers and everything." Well, in the very beginning, it's not about the numbers; it's about the inspiration, it's about the people, it's about the execution. So,
2: well, I think the research has shown that people tend to invest in people like themselves.
1: Right. Yes. And so I think that really—that I mean—you follow the money.
2: How How could we help make sure that happens?
1: You know, I think if you're a founder and you, you're you in the fortunate position of having one of the very hot startups that everybody's kind of clamoring to get into, be very thoughtful about who you take money from. You know, one of the reasons why I joined, um, why I partnered with, with Joe when he was raising money for his company Reserve He um, reserved an allocation for female investors. and He said, you know, I could could have filled that with XYZ, you know, top tier fund. But I wanted to make sure that we had women investors, you know, around the cap table so that when we do have that success, they see the taste of that success. They want to keep, you know, giving back to that community. And it's a very self-perpetuating cycle. So I think as a founder, be thoughtful about who you align yourself with and who you're making money for. And then you know, as a as an investor, try to be more intentional
2: about it. Uh, have you heard of any processes or best practices for investors looking to um, take some of the bias out of it, out of it, or at least make sure that they're getting a diverse portfolio of investments?
1: Yeah, I think take some risks. I mean, Joe took a big risk on me. Uh, you know, he gave me the initial startup capital to start at Human Ventures, and yeah. you know, I hadn't run a fund before, and I hadn't, you know, he but he really saw. I think some of those, um, qualities that we resonate that we both resonated with. And so you, you really, yeah, I think take a chance on more people yeah. that you think have the, the it, you know, I mean, that's very vague, but you know, it.
2: If, if I'm a female entrepreneur with an idea, I want to, I need to get funding and, and grow. I, I realize as a female, it might be more difficult for me because this industry Historically, it has not been as friendly as to like a white male with a Ivy League MBA, right? But say I'm I'm female and I don't have that degree, I don't have that tech background, I haven't started several companies before. What are some of the things that I can do to make sure that my idea gets funded and gets traction and excels in this industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this right now is the best time that it's ever been for women in. Um starting your own business, in venture. And I mean, we don't just work with women founders. We have about half and half in our portfolio right now. Um, But I think, you know, all the same things apply. Just don't think that you can't because you're a woman, right? I think you want to make sure that you still focus on getting the right mentorship. Clearly, networking is a big thing for me. And it's not just networking for the sake of meeting a bunch of people, but it's really finding who the people are that you value their opinion, studying what they, how they how they've done it and can you find kind of a mentor that will help you leapfrog some of those those challenges or have done it before or gives you that edge. And then surround yourself with really smart people, you know, and, and give them that opportunity so that you're stronger as a team.
2: Yeah. The the mentorship piece is something that is a recurring theme in all of our interviews. I'm curious, do you have a mentor who was particularly helpful for you on your life path? You know, maybe above and beyond your your mom and your dad who sound yeah. like were very supportive. Early on?
1: I do, you know, in different, pla- in different areas of my life. You know, I was um, the executive director of the David Lynch Foundation. He's had an incredible influence on my life just because he's had so much, um, you know, he's given his whole life to this cause and this relentless work ethic that I, when I was working with him, that I adopted. And it wasn't for, you know, monetary success. It was for just a relentless drive of what you're doing. Um,
2: Talk to me a little bit about the mission of the David Lynch Foundation.
1: Yeah, um, to bring uh, meditation to at-risk populations. So it was a scientifically, it is a scientifically validated model of meditation that's repeatable, so that you can see the effects within. Um, victims of of traumatic stress, so veterans who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, um, inner city school children, you know, in very violent situations exhibit the same brain functioning oftentimes as somebody who's had trauma um, on the battlefield. So we're able to do some brain mapping and see how how meditation can affect those populations in a positive way. That's awesome. Um,
2: And how, how did you meet the executive director?
1: Um, I started volunteering for, because I've, I've been practicing, actually, um, meditation since I was very young. Uh, came with kind of the entrepreneurial mindset of my father, who was sure. also... Let's how, trans- how old were
2: you when, when you first started meditating? Five.
1: Five. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it was just, it was, you know, do your homework, brush your teeth, meditate. It was part That's of great. our daily routine. I practice something called transcendental meditation. It's a specific type. Um, and when I was out in the Bay Area, uh, there were a couple of inner city schools in South San Francisco that they were implementing meditation into these schools. And you, so I volunteered to meditate with the kids and you saw this massive transformation in these schools and the San Francisco Unified School District implemented it in several different schools that were at risk of shutting down.
2: How do you get a kid to sit still to meditate?
1: Well, I mean, that was what was so incredible about it, really, was that you saw this intense calm. It was, first it was offered as an alternative to medication for kids who had severe ADD and ADHD. So, you know, these these kids have oftentimes so, so much energy and so much um, capacity for creativity, but they just can't sit still in their body. So Mm -hmm. when you do see their whole mind kind of calm down with this, um, it was very inspiring. And it, it helped channel a lot of that.
2: So it, it's it's literally just a matter of sit still and...
1: Uh, well, that technique they, they, is... A, they
2: automatically do it or... Yeah,
1: I mean, it's a technique. So you're trained yeah. with a with a personal trainer. It um, takes about an hour and a half a day over four days. You're given a sound... And you say it internally, and, it, and then it allows you to, to transcend. It allows you to calm down, mm-hmm. your whole physiology. But you, but you see that um, very prominently in, you know, that contrast was very obvious. Yeah, sure. And, you know, a lot of people do say, I don't know the statistics around it. They say that founders, you know, had some form of ADD when they were younger were Ugh. able to do that. I think that um, absolutely translates to this environment where you should have some sort of outlet in your life for being able to find your calm, whatever that is, yeah. you know, and um, and if you do tap into that, then you're so much more clear, and you know, you have a vision. You, you're able to um, inspire people with your vision and, and things of that nature.
2: Is that something you could talk me through right now? Someone who hasn't practiced meditation before, maybe a listener, could actually have their first transcendental meditative practice?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are so many different types of meditation now. I think it's kind of like saying, that, you know, it's like medication, you know, there, there's all different types. Um, so it depends what resonates with you. Personally, I've done me- transcendental meditation my whole life, but you can go to any TM, they call it TM center. You know, they're, you know, some people get that same feeling out of exercising or music or.
2: So do you need to have access to a transcendental meditation center or access to an instructor? In order to be able to do TM effectively.
1: Yeah, that that particular meditation technique you do, you learn from a teacher, which I personally love because then people really, I think there's a higher rate of retention mm-hmm. when you have a teacher like that. You know, you're doing it right. You're not just learning from a book, trying to figure out, am I doing this right? Am Ugh. I, you know, you get the intellectual understanding alongside the personal experience. So I do see um, the the amount of people who stick with it when you do transcendental meditation you see that a lot higher than if it's you know download an app and do it you know when you can
2: type Mm -hmm. of thing that's that's good uh context to have as someone who's downloaded a meditation app before which is
1: great i'm not knocking that too but you i mean you're relying on yourself discipline. Yeah. To, to be able to, to do that. Yeah.
2: So it's a good thing. Good variable to take out of the equation. Yeah. The piece that led to all of this was I was talking to you about uh, your mentors. Oh, yeah. And you brought up the executive director of the David Lynch Foundation. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me about how you got to know that person? Because a lot of people volunteer in organizations and then don't develop a relationship with the executive director.
1: Yeah. I so mean, h-
2: at, how did that end up happening?
1: It didn't, it wasn't even formed yet. So we just started it. And when he, um, and that's kind of how my career kind of derailed a little bit from venture and into philanthropy was, I was very passionate about this vision and he was an incredible individual who was able to execute on this. And so I just kind of jumped on that train. Um, actually it turned out David Lynch, the film director was the one who started the foundation with, with Bob Roth, the executive director. And David wrote to Paul McCartney and said, you know, we're doing, we'd love to do a concert where we can teach a million kids to meditate. Would you do it? And he said, I have April 4th open. So that launched the David Lynch Foundation in New York. And I didn't even think twice. I just moved to New York. We opened up the David Lynch Foundation in New York. Um, You know, that was an incredible night. It was 2009, April 4th. I'll never forget it. Yeah, Ringo came. It was Sheryl Crow, Eddie Vedder, Ben Harper. Like all these people, you know, started really kind of coming out of the meditation closet. They've been meditating for a long time and Howard Stern, Jerry Seinfeld. It was an incredible evening. Wow. But so that then, you know, launched my um, kind of path with the David Lynch Foundation for quite some time.
2: That's great. So it was really a matter of like getting involved at an early stage, kind of right time, right place, and, and then acting on it when yeah. the opportunity presented itself.
1: I think that's the one thing I can trace back in my career at every single inflection point. It was when you feel that big opportunity, there's a difference between just taking that leap and then letting, or letting it pass you by. And I think taking that leap has always proven to be beneficial for what I'm doing.
2: Have there ever been any opportunities where you had to pass them by because you had too many other things going on? Or...
1: I've tried to go to business school three times, and um, you know I take the GMAT, I you know fill out the applications, and then I usually get offered a job or have an opportunity, and I go and do that instead. So it's still something on my bucket list that I haven't been able to go back and do, but it's always proven to be, um, you know, the opportunity cost is too high, especially you know as I was getting older, and I am fairly young, but I'm not as young as I used to be. So to go to school for two years right now. Is, is uh is different than being in the working world.
2: <laughs> yeah your your alternative MBA path is yeah. uh, is pretty valuable I'm sure and, and probably dwarfs anything you would have gotten out of any two year program.
1: I don't know, there, there's definitely value value to it, I always say too, if I had um if I had that path behind what I'm doing, it would have been probably a lot easier to do some of the stuff that I've been doing, but you just kind of have to prove off of your merit of, of executing.
2: As um, as founders are looking to execute in their business, I, I want to bring this back to transcendental meditation because I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's very interesting and something that more founders probably should be encouraged to at least try out. If you were to talk to them about them scaling their businesses and why they might want to look at taking care of themselves first, yeah. what would your advice to them be?
1: I think that um, founder burnout is real, and it's, you know, when you're in your 20s, I think that's why early, younger founders is always, it's kind of always been the stereotype, because whether you don't have family or you have enough energy that you you feel like it's never going to end, all that sort of stuff, when you get to be in your 30s and 40s, whatever, you, you know that that's going to catch up to you, so... I think in a very early age, it's important to establish some balance of rest and activity, and that doesn't mean that you're not efficient with your time. I, you know, I'm definitely you know guilty of overworking, and you know the, there aren't enough hours in the day. And then cu- coupled on top of that, are you know, I'm in New York City, which just never stops. But I do know how to listen to my body, and I know how to listen to when I need to take some time or. And you know, I would just say, figure out what your mechanism is to be able to reflect and take that time and make sure you're doing that sometimes because you will be a better boss. You'll be a better, you'll be able to, to grow with the organization because I think that your your company can only be as big as you're allowing it to be. And so you have to constantly looking to grow yourself and and increase the capacity of your container.
2: Uh, Are there things that you've seen founders do other other than maybe meditate or take more yoga classes or you know do the physical activity side of things are there things that you've seen founders do as they've scaled their business to stay ahead on the business acumen side that's been particularly effective outside of you know the normal just like reading books and blogs of Thought leaders.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can really only speak from my my experience in my career. It's still by no means where I I want to be in my life. It's really meeting people. The amount of people that you can meet and then really listen to and understand. You know, I think from other industries as well. So. You know i don't just go to venture capital events i don't just go to tech events there's that background that gives that cross collaboration with and that's where i think philanthropy also is interesting because there's so many different walks of life coming together around one cause but they all have a different background so that's how i was a little bit trained right so you can see the commonality between people and not irrespective of their industry mm-hmm. and so I think being open to that, your laser focus on what you're learning and your industry, I think that's really important, but to open yourself up to other industries because people think differently, you know, people think differently with an art background. People think differently with, you know, at a hedge fund that they do, you know, at a, at a tech startup. So I think it's just really important to, to expose yourself to other ways of thinking.
2: That's good advice. And, uh, something everyone could put it uh, on their to-do list to go check out an event outside of the tech and venture industry yeah. i think it does does end up being an echo chamber quite frequently so yeah and i'll say
1: one thing i know we've been going on for a little while but you know, a lot of this business is luck, right? I'm just trying to put myself in a situation where when, you know, you get that support, you're in a, in a position to be able to capitalize on it or, you know, jump on an opportunity. But then when you break down what is luck, it's not some like amorphous thing. It's really allowing yourself to, to be exposed to opportunity. I think that's what luck is to me. And so you can change up different behaviors just to expose yourself to more quote unquote luck take different paths to work, go to different events, meet new people. So I, when I first moved to New York, I wouldn't go to an event that I knew somebody else at that event. I just tried to meet as many people as I could and try to connect the dots around those different networks. And I forced myself to do that because then you can, you can connect those dots, you know, and you're seeing something that, that's outside of just that immediate circle that you know you'll default to because it's easy.
2: That's a huge value to be able to provide to founders now and as you continue to kind of grow and scale. Do you still do that to this day?
1: Uh, quite a bit. I'll, you know, there are a lot of events now that come. On your, you could be busy every single night of the week. Sure. So I do prioritize ones that I think will expand the network. And, I, you know, back to thinking what, what do our founders need at that time? I'll go to events where I think that I can meet people who will be most beneficial to what they're doing, what they're building.
2: That's great. If people want to find out more about Human Ventures and what you're doing, uh, maybe even pitch you an idea, uh, where can they go to check you out?
1: Uh, go to humanventures.co. I, I'm just Heather at humanventures.co. I field emails all day long. Um, but we, you know, we have events. We have over 50 events a year. We do brainstorm sessions. Um, you know, I hope to really scale that up. We're, we're fairly young right now, so there's a lot more to come.
2: Very cool, very cool. Other than the brainstorm uh, events, uh, can they find you on social? Yeah. As well, is Not it...
1: all of it. <laughs>
2: Twitter, Twitter <laughs> yeah. Instagram. been on Twitter
1: quite a bit. Okay. And I've found it. It's kind of like a resurgence of Twitter right now. Yeah. I'm definitely. Um, I hope so. I'm bullish on Twitter.
2: Good. Good. I, I don't know where I stand yet on on Twitter. Well, I mean,
1: as a business, I don't know, but as a platform, like mm-hmm. it's it's <laughs> such an incredible, you know, platform for voice and for brand and for knowledge.
2: Well, Heather, thank you so much for sharing your thank story you. and, and you. some of your expertise like, from uh, Human Ventures. Thank you.
1: It's thanks thanks awesome. so much for having me.
0: Yeah, you bet. <laughs> That's it for our interview with Heather Hartnett. But as you know, that does not have to be the end of the conversation. Let's keep the combo going over on social. You can find Heather on Twitter at Heather Hartnett. Uh, that's at Heather Hartnett, all one word. And then you can also find her venture firm, Human Ventures, at humanventures.co. If you like this interview with Heather, you might like going back and listening to episode number 17 on the Powder Keg Podcast. And that was with Jenny Blake, another New Yorker. And we talked a lot about mindfulness and the positive effects of practices like yoga or meditation, both personally and on your business. Again, that's episode number 17 with Jenny Blake. And for more stories on entrepreneurs, leaders, and top talent outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com iTunes. You'll want to subscribe because we have some great guests coming up, so don't miss it. We've also got a helpful companion website at powderkeg.com. You're going to find show notes there with all the links and contact information we mentioned in the episode, as well as some other useful articles and interviews from the Powderkeg community. So thanks for listening, and you'll be hearing from us real soon.